theme song, don't you? Hey, how's it going, everybody? Welcome to Tell You What, the podcast. We talk with musicians about songwriting and the creative process. My guest today is Willie T. Taylor, songwriter, musician, entertainer, storyteller deluxe. I had a great time with Willie T. here at Tell You What HQ recently. What a warm-hearted, engaging, and entertaining soul. He was scheduled to arrive on a Friday to sit for an interview and do a show here at Tell You What Studios. However, a big storm hit, and it was too dangerous for Willie to make the long drive from his show in southern Ohio. But he was determined to get here, and Willie found a friend in Indiana to hunker down with, and we were able to rearrange everything for the next night. We ended up having a great podcast conversation, in fact, many conversations over the weekend, and an excellent live performance for our audience here at Tell You What HQ. So at one point in the interview, when I was asking Willie about his way of connecting with his audience and why so many folks have emotional reactions to his music, he said simply, I just really like people. A lot. And I'm here to tell you he meant it. For example, right before the show here, I told Willie the audience would be arriving shortly and he could go downstairs to prepare, and I would call him up at showtime, as most performers would do. Why would I want to do that, Willie asked. I realized he wanted to greet everyone as they came in, shook hands all around, chatted everyone up. After the show, he manned his merch table for an hour. I think he ended up giving away more merch than he sold. And then Willie hung out with the stragglers, and some of us ended up staying up well past our bedtimes as Willie helped us solve the problems of the world. It is clear Willie loves people and knows how to connect. This is the key to his songwriting and his performing genius. He gets people, loves life, sees the connections and as a result, tells stories with his songs that ring so true, they sound like they have existed forever. So we had a great discussion for this episode, but know that our conversation meandered, as conversations do. Before recordings, I say to my guests, answers that don't answer the question, answers that meander, they're all cool. Willie took that instruction to heart. But as it turned out, his stories were, of course, much better than where I would have taken the conversation anyway. We eventually hear some great insights into Willie's creative process. His description of how his songs come about is unlike just about any of the other 50 or so guests I've had on here. Fascinating stuff. So stick with this one. You will hear some great stories in the first half and a great peek inside Willie's process in the second part. And be sure to check out The Great Western Hangover, Willie's latest record. All Willie's albums are worth listening to, but he has collected some amazing musicians on this one that bring his songs to life with vibrancy and energy. It rocks. Quick shout out to Lauren Fields at Shady Grove Strategies and Brad Refinot at Madison House for putting this conversation and the live shows here together. Much appreciated. And now, please enjoy this Tell You What conversation with Willie T. Taylor.
All right, Willie T. Taylor, welcome to Tell You What, the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, you are, let's set the scene. You made it here to the Tell You What International Headquarters in the Epiplex here. Yeah, day late, but... Yeah, your intention was to get here yesterday. A blizzard said otherwise, right? Yeah, yeah, happens. Well, yeah, let's talk about that for a second. This is life on the road for a touring musician, right? This is, this is, it's not all glamour out there as you no, buy your trade, is it? No, <laughs> it's a lot of driving and putting yourself out there at risk a lot. I listen to a lot of audiobooks, so I just get in a groove and kind of uh, get to where I'm going. Yeah. I hope, uh, hope we don't need a tow truck. Yeah, touring the northern Midwest in the winter. It's, I mean, yeah, I don't usually do that, yeah. so it's new to me. Well, so. we're glad you were able to make it here. A day late is still worth it in our book. Yeah, I'm glad it worked out. And we're going to actually be hosting a show here and tell you what studios tonight with you. So we're looking forward to that as well. Yeah, me too. So where is home for you these days? You were born and raised in Northern California. Do I have that right? Yeah, like uh, Northern Central, yeah. Oakdale, Knights Ferry, California. But you no longer live there. Nope. I moved when I was 45 to Michigan for okay. a couple of years, or a year. And uh, then I moved back to California for a couple months and then... Ended up in Nashville. My oh, okay. friend had a house out there, and I wasn't on my radar to end up in Nashville, but I did somehow, yeah. so I'm out there now. That's a big change from cowboy territory in Northern California, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I've been on the road for 20 years, yeah. so I kind of get a little piece of everything. So it's not shocking, but yeah. I don't know. I like rivers, and, you know, I mean, they're, they're out there. Yeah, but. they have a river. Yeah, but it's really fun. It's a lot of great people there. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, talk about your early days growing up out there in Northern California. I mentioned Cowboys. I believe that where you lived was is considered the Cowboy capital of the United States. Do I have that right? Yeah, there's a lot of argument as I drive around the country, <laughs> which I, I agree with. Um, but now it's mostly almonds. They, yeah. The joke is it used to be a cow town until the nuts moved in. <laughs> um, but... My family, third generation cattle ranchers. Yeah. Um, and my dad still has a few head. But, um, okay. Any musicians in the family? You know, on my dad's side, there was a, my great uncle Leland, great great uncle Leland. Uh -huh. He played the fiddle, but that's about it, really. Well, then let's talk about how you came to music as your creative outlet. If I have this right, you, you really didn't start playing or writing music until you were somewhat older by the standards of performing musicians. Yeah, I would right? say I kind of started around 22. Yeah. You know, something like that. What's that story? How is it that it was took you that long to, to find music? Well, you know, there's, uh, I guess I always found it, you know, like when you go through life and something just stands out and it's like a clue to your life uh -huh. I don't know that's as I get older I see a lot more of them now yeah. I'm like oh, okay that's a clue to my life <laughs> my dad was fixing fence on this beautiful ranch he <clears throat> was the head guy at he was fixing fence and I remember just being in my underwear in the truck and it was hot and I think the Giants game just ended on the AM station so it went into country music and it was El Paso by Marty Robbins. Uh -huh. And I was maybe four years old or something. And I remember just stopping whatever I was doing in the truck. And I just stared 
at that radio station and I was like what is that and it was the most beautiful thing I've ever heard in my life you know and I was like and it still is one of the most beautiful yeah. things I've ever heard so music was always important to you yeah always like uh and then shortly after my mom gave me my first 45 had a Snoopy record player me and my brother did and I forget what she gave him, but she gave me uh, Mrs. Robinson, and I played that yeah. over and over, and yeah. I was just... And so then throughout, like in high school, I I didn't know how to play music, but I was the front man of our grunge band, oh, okay. you know, they needed a singer. So. so you were, in high school, you were making music. Yeah, I was in theater a lot. Yeah, okay. you know, and I've... Theater. As much as I don't like musicals, I was in a couple, you yeah. know, like... My, we all have that you know, dark part of our history. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so I just liked theater a lot. I liked movies. We made movies a lot. And so we just always had our, I was fortunate to grow up and still grow up with my best buddies from kindergarten up, you know? Yeah. And we were eclectic dudes, you know? And so we always brought interesting things to the table. We were the ones who were always making the movies and doing things like that. So you had creative pursuits, right? Before you became a songwriter. Yeah. yeah. Was poetry one of these pursuits? Poetry was always since I was little. Like that's, I knew that I, my best friend and I were, he's a musician. We we were in the band in high school together. We always were selected to do the poetry anthology because, you know, growing up because I guess we were writing some pretty good ones back then. Um, so at this point, were you, you were writing poetry, but also songs as part of that? Or was it still well, something like in, separate? In high school, I used to write poetry for my buddies, for yeah. their girlfriends. <laughs> I think I saw this Shakespeare play, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. And, and then they just keep coming back like, dude, that worked, man. Give me another one. And then I, I would just write these. And then I made the mistake. It was like a few years ago. I ran into, you know, it's been so many years. And I... I told her that I was the one writing it, and she was devastated. And oh, I was my. like, oh, what a jerk. I should, I should have just kept that to myself. That's great. But I thought she'd get a kick out of it. But she was like, I always treasured those from him. Oh, and like, wow. Oh, my God. So at what point did the poetry writing become songwriting? It was a time in Nirvana, you know, yeah. it was the mid-90s, early 90s. and You picked up a guitar. No. No. I mean, I, I've had a I had a guitar that was my step grandfather's. That's real important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, that I got maybe in seventh grade, and I learned three chords. But it was a it's an old True Tone from the '60s, early '60s, and I guess you would get them at Western Auto. And the action was like you know it was just super high. But the body is just amazing. You know, years later I got it set up and, yeah. I, and everybody's like no wonder, Whoa, no wonder I a... couldn't play this thing yeah I'm like this is terrible why would I want to do that you know and but at this point they just needed a front man okay and we're in a garage and I'm I'm like you know I got this and uh so you wrote some lyrics and they yeah. wrote some, some and then we, music to it and we played cream and you know yeah. like uh got kicked out of a couple dances at high school you know being a little too racy yeah a little extreme there you know <laughs> And then I moved up to Humboldt County. My brother was up there working in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really have anything to do. So I was just kind of wandering at 19 and ended up there. And I guess my mind got expanded, shall we say. Sure, you know? Humboldt County will do that to you. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it was like this really wild. I mean, because when I was 18, right after out of high school, I finally went to this festival that my friend's family throws, and it's it's always the most beautiful festival. But I never went to it, mm-hmm. and I didn't really know what it was. I was going to Guns N' Roses shows and yeah. you know different stadium shows and club shows. And when I went, it was in Yosemite. It was called the Strawberry Music Festival. It's it was just a a whole world, you know, like with 7,000 people living in perfect harmony. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just like, so and they did it. like folk, uh, country, music. Yeah, all of it, world. Yeah. So, I mean, okay. you'd have Emmylou Harris and yeah. then, and Guy Clark, and sure. then you would have like Mumble Gum, like all just African bands. And, mm-hmm. and uh, but when I first got there, I was just like blown away. And I realized I, I started smoking in high school, you know. I'm like, dang, I forgot to get some smokes. And I saw this guy backstage smoking. So I just bummed a few smokes off him. And we were talking about Yosemite. And, and then he's like, wow, I got to get on stage. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I went out front, and it was Greg Brown. Mm-hmm. And when Greg Brown played, I was like, I think I know what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. It was just wow. one of those clue moments, you know, yeah. like it was so strong and so vibrational that I was like, wow, you could just get up there by yourself and tell these stories and yeah. sing songs. Like I'm in, I better figure out how Greg to do Brown. that. Yeah. And I guess when I went up to Humboldt and had a pretty wild night on some LSD, like pretty heavy dose like too much (laughs) and uh heroic i believe heroic dose of lsd (laughs) still recovering (laughs) you know but it was so far out i don't you just change like something changes when you go that far in and for good you know like it was and then i i just kind of saw a path and I was like so these are right around the same time these two incidents yeah the LSD and yeah the, just, and so the I'm up Brown. in Humboldt afterwards and then this traveling kid came by and he had it all and so and he was a crazy dude <laughs> but we tripped all night and then uh, you know telepathy we didn't we weren't even talking it was just yeah. like so he saw my path too you know mm-hmm. what I mean and the next day there's a banjo on my bed after I came back from work and he bought it for me because wow. we went to this music store and I was just like, oh, far out. And right before that... Up until this point, you really have not played an instrument. No, okay. just that. Well, before that, I I spent my whole paycheck. It was seventy four fifty washing dishes at an Italian restaurant. And I went over to the antique shop and there was this really terrible mandolin a hondo all beat up yep. and uh they wanted 75 dollars for it and i was like dang i'm so close and then 50 I, cents short yeah and i walked outside like all defeated and then i'm <laughs> and then this brilliant idea came into my head like i bet it'll take 74.50 <laughs> and i gave him my whole paycheck like just and i couldn't afford to do that i mean look at that was my paycheck 74.50 yeah that's yeah. life and yeah. uh but it, without thinking, I just did it, and I went across the street, and my boss fronted me for next week to get some strings, and on the way I walked <laughs> home, I stopped at the library and got a book on how to play mandolin, and uh, 
I just started on that, you know, yeah. and then that's shortly after that trip came and the banjo entered your life. Yeah, which was the when the banjo entered my life, I was like, okay, this is gonna save the world, you yeah. know. And I remember having this crazy vision, and we would just be taking two foot bong ramps all day, you know, <laughs> humble weed, and so yeah, and wash dishes, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it wasn't. Um, but I remember having this entire vision of going to Africa and playing with all the tribes and like bringing the banjo back, and I like I saw the whole thing. Banjo back to Africa, yes. yeah, yeah, and then. You know, a few years back when Bela did that yes. in Throw Down Your Heart, like, my soul was so happy because it was exactly... That was the vision. It was the vision, you know, yeah. and I'm just like, oh, it's so perfect. <laughs> but in that shop where that banjo was, there was this book called The World and Its Instruments, and it was kind of this heady dude who just had a lot of drums and weird stuff around, and he was an instrument guy. And I opened the page to the book, and it just said Irish guitar. And it was like a four-string guitar. And I remember looking at that going, okay, I'm going to get one of those. Like, that was another clue moment in my life. Yeah. And I remember I took note of that, like, I want one of those. Mm -hmm. And never saw one anywhere. And um, so the banjo is what I learned, you know, not very good. I was just, I was trying. You yes. know, I had the Earl Scruggs book. And I, you know, and so then I just kind of, this bastardized version of, hammering and claw hammer yeah and because i could never do it so then it became the banjo i was obsessed with it you know were you able to write songs and sing with the banjo that seems like something that would be hard to do i mean it's not really yeah i, I annoy myself on the mandolin and the banjo yeah. unless i'm by myself with the banjo okay. then i just i surf you know on okay. it because it's really so that's why i'm just man it would be cool to have a mando banjo crossover like a guitar and, <laughs> and you found then, it in this book yeah and i already i knew there was one and like i just didn't get one until later in life i yeah. played banjo okay in a band and we started the harry wavo trio and sang songs about weed and <laughs> and then slowly how just, many songs about weed did you know oh, man did you quite a few <laughs> yeah, yeah i used to smoke quite a bit so I, I find this a little bit fascinating. You were in high school writing poetry. I guess some of it was becoming songs. But until later, it almost didn't even dawn on you that you could do this yourself or that you should do this yourself. Until I saw Greg Brown. Greg yeah. Brown. And so that like stuck in me. Like, oh, I can, I can do gotta, what he's doing. But at the Strawberry Music Festival late at night, you know, I just go around and all these people are just savage pickers and they're so good. And yeah. I was like, it's intimidating. Whoa. So that's where I was like raised on bluegrass a lot. So we just got raised at that festival because once I went, then they gave us a job to hang the curtains and security. And we were there twice a year. Okay. They did it twice a year for years, 20 years, you know. Like, and So at what point did you decide you could do this? You were Brighton singing weed songs with your buddies at what point did you decide I can do this myself I can get on a stage sing songs that I wrote and play the guitar my friends that I was speaking of growing up with they had this I don't know, crazy household it was like an incubator of madness okay like we did crazy things and so that and so that's where it became this known place of just madness and and glory and creativity and wildness and so we would do these 
you know, acoustic jam parties. And then everybody started just writing songs and, and you Keeping know. off each other. Yeah, and then it just started going. And then there was a band uh, in our area called Granddaddy, a great indie band. Mm-hmm. Um, they heard of this crazy house, and so they started hanging out with us. And, and they were like on Virgin Records. They were traveling the world already. They, yep. just, they just loved our madness, and <laughs> we all fit together, you know, kind of. And so then that just escalated into other bands being made. And then I was always connected, really, to the Strawberry Music Festival and Bluegrass. So so were my other buddies. And just started gathering. And we just incubated there and learned how to play at this bar, you know, as big as this room. I don't yeah. know. It's a, it's, it was so small. That's great. And it was so loud. So we just learned to the worst crowd in the world. You know, so once you learn every to play for the worst crowd in the yeah. world, everything else is gravy, you know? like it, How long before you said, I want to play my songs for other people in other parts of the state or other parts <clears throat> of the country? So around the Harry Wavo Trio kind of turned into this band. We were the Acapulco Gold Miners for a little <laughs> bit. And then... Uh, Still with the weed songs. Then we met just this flat picker kid at the Strawberry Music Festival and decided to make a band and we got together and it we just meshed and we called ourselves the puffin billies okay and we just started playing gigs you know and then we got obsessed with it because it was so fun and we just kept learning and getting better and you were writing songs for these combinations the whole time yeah yeah and uh on mandolin yeah you know and then not on the tenor guitar uh, no, I haven't found one of those. Yeah. You know, I, like, I still it's in, haven't. It's in the dream somewhere. Yeah, it's in the dream world. <laughs> then somebody else in the band got a mandolin, a good one, mm-hmm. and they got really good. So it's like, all right, I'll, you know, I'll play the banjo, I guess, you know? And I tried to put, like, gut strings on it and quiet it to get a little more yeah. like I wanted. And then one of the guys in the band just became a ripping banjo player. So, <laughs> so I was like... And right when that happened, we went to the music store, and there was a 1932 Kalamazoo plectrum guitar. And I went, that's it. That's the one right there. And the guy goes, I just came in on trade on 100 bucks. And I was like, 100 bucks. And I got it, and my whole world exploded. Now my voice, now everything made sense. And when I'd write, I just bonded with it, you know, like Avatar. And this allows this instrument allows you to perform solo, maybe that you couldn't before. Is exactly, something which which it? never stopped me. I was yeah. having this conversation last night with my friends. They're learning to play a lot of songs, and, and some they're still shy about it. Yep. And I was like, you know, I knew that in order to get good, you're just gonna suck. You know, like for a while. Yeah. And yeah. so just get past it and suck. You know, yeah. and. And kind of don't care. And that, people have told me that about songwriting too. You got to write all the bad songs first. So you sure, yeah. Songs, or right? you know, I don't know. Sometimes, like some of the first songs I ever wrote are still some of my best songs. In the <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. I guess that's. I used to have a method. I don't do it so much anymore. I'm trying to get back into it, but life, you know, gets so complicated. But when you're a young stoner, you could take a nap. And as soon as you wake up, take a bong rip. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, you're in this world of creativity. And that's how I used to write every song. Interesting. And um, 
I, le- I, le- I learned uh, wasn't Alexander Graham Bell. I'm known for knowing a little bit about a lot of things. Okay. So I always take my solid information as just I'm like a fritzing. My fact checkers are on vacation. Don't worry. Yeah, good. Um, uh, the electricity guy, Thomas Edison. Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, Thomas Edison. I think would sit in a chair with ball bearings and pie tins underneath them, and as soon as he like. They woke him up. He would, he would start drop the writing, and I. So then I was like, well, "I wonder if that reefer nap mode kind of locks you into that." Yeah, you know. And so maybe interesting something there. Yeah. yeah, that's something you and Thomas Edison have in common. Yeah, you started to say this a little bit when you discovered this guitar about the the tenor guitar about how it fits your voice and talk about how it changed your approach to to songwriting. Um, well, if when it, I got it, it I, you know, I looked it up. And this happened to be a plectrum, so it was a longer scale. Okay. And so I just tuned it in G, like a banjo, you know. that's why you knew how to play. Yeah, and then I was like, oh, this is... And I knew all the chords, and yeah. so, like, that just... That got stolen from me. I'm still looking for it, by the way. It's very unique. Okay. <laughs> You're scared to describe it in case anyone sees it? Well, it's a Cal- 1932 Kalamazoo, okay. and uh, I think I have my name carved in the back. All right. Keep your eyes out yeah. for it, people. The valuable reward waiting. But then I found a 29 Gibson yeah. that my friend bought, and she never really used it. And then she gave that to me, and, and that 29 Gibson just... And then I tried using tenor strings, and I'm like, no, 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 no. Yeah. So I just started stringing it with regular guitar, guitar strings. strings. And those older ones at first are like, what are, you, what are you doing to me? You know. <laughs> but then they they settle in, you know. And so so I've just learned to play tenor guitar and open G yeah. with regular guitar strings. And, and do you think that opened up your songwriting? Absolutely. Yeah. It was just warm. You yeah. know, I needed that warmth and... I was always trying to stuff my banjo to make it warm, yeah. you know, like a, like a umbasha, like an African banjo. I think it's probably my ultimate instrument. Well, what? let's let's talk about your music a little bit and the warmth the warmth of it in particular. I'm glad you said that word because when I was looking at videos and reading what people had to say about your music and about your shows, a common thread emerged, and that is grown-up adults being brought to tears. When listening to your songs, right? I'm not. I don't think I'm surprising you by saying this. I came across this many times, and at first glance, you are not maybe the type of musicians folks would expect that from that kind of music that hits so hard. But what do you, what do you think about this? The effect some of your writing and performing has on people when you see when people tell you, "Why well, listen to your song and it made me cry." Yeah, you know, I you do hear this a lot. I'm yeah, 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 and yeah. I like, uh, yeah, I feel it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's what Greg Brown made me do. Yeah, you know, and so that I think I understood it. Like it was, oh, this is a relationship with the crowd, and like, and I was in theater, and it's the same thing. You yeah. know, like um, I've just always really loved people. You know, a lot, and at that time of the, the LSD and whatnot, I would. I got into massage school because I wanted to help people feel better. And mm-hmm. there was great schools up there. And, and I learned some intense, crazy things that changed my life on like, whoa, even, I mean, beyond LSD. Like, wow, we're 
powerful beings yeah, and connecting with people in different ways. Yeah. And I had, so I came back down to Oakdale. Uh, my son was conceived mm-hmm. and we came back home, my girlfriend and I, and I opened up a massage shop <laughs> and, and I just could never get behind like charging. It didn't make sense to me. Like to charge money. Yeah. I'm like, if I could help you, like, why would I charge you? You know, that's like a insane. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, one time this lady was dying of cancer, and she asked if I could save her, you know? And I I could feel it. Like, I, mm. I couldn't save her. Like, I'm like, oh, wow. I don't know this feeling, but it, it seemed, feels like death, you know, is close. And it really affected me, you know? Yeah. And she tried to pay me, and I was like, no. Yeah. And that's when I closed the doors to that. I'm like, I can't charge people for this. This is too sacred, you know? Like, yes. uh, I understand it, how it works, but I'd rather use it on a more pure level, you know, that kind of stuff. So and, with your songs, you're making these connections in a similar way. Yeah, and I mean, I have to have gasoline and go down the road, yeah. but I still, you know, when things are good, it's just like, I don't know, what do you, whatever you want to pay for. That feels better than... Yeah, you know, charging. I don't. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm thinking here of one of your older songs that uh, "Life Is Beautiful." I watched what looks like a campfire video recording of this song. You're sitting around with some friends around a campfire. You know which one I'm talking nah, about? Maybe I don't know. But you know the song I'm talking. Yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, this is kind of the, an example of the type of writing and performing. I think the song, in particular, that really moves people. It's kind of a laundry list of things that are important to you, right? This song, "Life Is Beautiful." And as I watch it, I think, and I've seen you perform live, I think it's the sincerity that moves people. These are not just, in a laundry list song, people might just throw out things that rhyme. These are not just rhyming words. It is clear these come from the heart, right? I think folks recognize that what you're singing is coming from deep inside you somewhere, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if it doesn't move me, I don't want to sing it. You know, I mean, even if it's a funny song, like if (laughs) I don't think it's funny, like why would, you know... uh, that particular song, I was. That's when I started traveling more, and people are asking where I'm from, and I'd be like, "Ah, it's between San Francisco and Yosemite." Yeah. And I'm like, and they'd be like, "Oh, cool." And I'm like, I wish I could just tell you where I'm from, you know. And so that's the song was originally called "This is Where I'm From." Okay. And yeah, I just wanted to write a song so people knew who you were, where my t- what my town was, and yeah. who I yeah. And, what's well, important to me It's buckets of joy It's a pinch of sorrow It's us singing in the streets like we're all dying tomorrow It's playing catch with my boy Chicken fried steak It's I got your back Brother it's whatever It takes Is that pretty Pretty girl It's my Wiffle ball team It's everything sacred, it's that slow-moving dream 
You ask me where I'm from, well, this is where I'm from. You ask me where I'm from, this is where I'm from. It's a great one. Let's talk a bit more about your live performance if we can. I saw you perform earlier this year with Willie Carlisle yeah. here in Chicago. I was I really enjoyed the show. In fact, I didn't know much about your music beforehand. I came away a true believer. So what is important to you about your live performances? What is it you're trying to do up there? Part of it's like, I just want it to be an experience, you know? Like, for me. Okay. You know what I mean? I want to, I want, because when I could check out from my life problems, you know, and you could get a room to do it all at once and live in this present moment, I think that's where, on a molecular structure, like healing happens, you know? Yeah. Everybody takes the the cortisone levels away of their stress, and then now I think the body's true nature starts working where it needs to instead mm-hmm. of always worrying about the stressful part, you know? Yeah. So I think music could be, and just moments with people are really special when you could check out yeah. and... I think that's like in massage when you're giving massage or you're getting one and then you realize like, wait, where did I go? You know, I think, <laughs> I don't know what, I just call that like the checkout. Yeah. And I think when you do that, that's when your body starts healing itself. You know, massage isn't really healing. We heal ourselves. Yeah. And I think if you could live in the moment like that and create space with stories and truth and honesty, you know, yeah. like... We're all a bunch of weirdos. Yeah, we <laughs> <It's>, are. <laughs> so I, I know when I go watch a show, like, take me away. You Speaking know what I mean? Speaking of weirdos, I, I'm trying to remember when I saw you, there was like interesting stuff on stage where there were puppets and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Let's so talk about that. Yeah, well, Bill Carlisle, he's a theater man too. And so okay. we knew each other. We knew of each other. and um, But we never really met and hung out. And so after the first night of that tour... I realized, like, oh, this is an experience. Like, this is a set, dude. And so I slowly just started filling my van with things from antique shops and thrift stores, and people would give us weird stuff. It was like puppets or things? Yeah, we started with, I bought a goose. Okay. You know, it was like a (laughs) goose made of hay or something. And then by the end of it, we had a full, you know, library with books perfectly picked out right that's right yeah so it was um i like that you know and it looks beautiful on stage and it's the extra effort every night is really rewarding because it it puts you in a comfortable it put us both in a comfortable zone because we're creating that we have a set you know we're not up there just uh and it just kind of like relaxes people a little more i I found out you know i really enjoy this conversation but i want to talk about some of your songs in particular yeah. maybe from this most recent excellent record Great Western Hangover oh thank you it is one of my favorites of of, of last year I would say excellent um, thank you first of all title maybe a reference to Leaving California The Great Western Hangover which is yeah it's very interesting that it ended up being so profound but like uh, I was talking with my friend Tani we we've always just like when we we'd all party on a Saturday night and then we would all lay around and watch a Western. That was the Western okay. Hangover. Okay. And she brought that up. Yeah. And then and then I was like, oh, the great... And the great Western is a character in one of the Larry McMurtry's books. 
And so I was just referencing Larry McMurtry and our hungover Western sessions. And then I realized like, oh, wow, this whole album is about me. That's my Western life, and I am I am leaving. Yeah. So it was kind of it turned into a profound <laughs> on a accident. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's great. Now you got some great musicians on this record. The guys from TK and the Holy No Nothings, oh, yeah. and they Just really rock killers. Yeah. And here's what I find. One of the things I find interesting. I love some of the rocking songs where you let those guys go loose with the electric guitars. Like for example, National Treasure, Devil's Taxidermy. Maybe we'll talk about them specifically. But I love the recorded versions with all the guitars. But then I see you videos of you playing these songs, just you and the tenor guitar. And they sound absolutely perfect in that setting with just you and the guitar. And that to me says something about these songs, that the essence of these songs is is pretty cool, that it can have these two versions that both sound like, oh, this is the way the song was meant to be. Yeah. What do you think about that? I don't know. All I have is myself. So I want it to sound good to me. Yeah. Like, you know, that's just part of... So that's like the base level is it has to sound good with just you and... Yeah, because I think when I... You know, I mean, some still think I'm a terrible singer. You know, it's I'm never really <laughs> known for my, you know, exquisite singing. But it's like when I... When Bob Dylan, that vibration happens with him and his guitar, like there's something that makes yeah. me feel so good. Yeah. And... And it, I, I hit that with myself, and I know that I'm in that frequency just for myself, yep. just to feel, because I believe it's healing also, you know, the vibrations. And and I don't write anything down, so I just, I just like... You don't write any lyrics down when you're writing a song? No, it's all in my head, and so I'll have to, I'll have to lock it in. If I get interrupted, I like to be alone. Yeah. That's when I happened. So then I could go through my process where I don't know. I'll just strum a G chord for a while, and then I could. And it's like paints a canvas, yeah, you know, or it gives one, mm-hmm. and then I could just start. And then sometimes just wow, some words come out, and yeah. then I'm like, oh, and then boom, I'm like, oh, boom, and then it just kind of a C chord. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, yeah, a C chord and throw that in and then uh, and then find, you know, what works and where's it at. And I just keep doing it. And then I'll do the first verse over and over until the first verse is not going anywhere ever again. Yeah. And then second verse and third verse. And if I switch them around and then once it's all complete, I, I'll sing it like 15 times. Is this generally happening in one session? Start yeah. to finish. Usually. Yeah. Usually. But sometimes I have to put it on ice. Yeah. You know, like. But a lot of these songs we're listening to, you wrote them start to finish in one session. Um, yeah, pretty yeah. much. Um, there's a song called 69 Malibu. Yep. And I wrote that. I was hanging out with the Rainbow Girls. I don't know if you've seen them. They're wonderful. Um, I've I've seen them. They're hilarious and talented. Yeah, Yeah, so talented. And I wanted to write a 1980s summer power hit. And that started as a joke. And I had to... I just went, I met her at a rock and roll show. And then then we just started kind of um, messing with some ideas about it. And she came up... I think it was... She brought up the line of like kind of help raising her mama or something I'm like oh 
that's good, you know? Yeah. And so then we, we had like a couple lines from it, but it would never, it was a worm in my head. And so it was almost a, an entire year because I, I, that I would be late night hanging out and yeah. I just start crafting it. it again, you know? And so I pretty much with late nights hanging out with some friends and different things kind of got to that yeah. final so it was like a year yeah, long. Yeah, it's interesting. You have these two separate kind of ways of doing it. That one is a year. Of, yeah, that's of, not usually. Versus the yeah. one session thing. She moved from Omaha to her cousins in Santa Cruz. It was 1981. She had a 69 Malibu. Her dad never made it back from now. Even though he said he would. She tried to raise her mom alright. The best that a good girl could. She left it all behind to see what she could find. She rode in the town that night, feeling freer than her red hair blowing in the wind. That's when I met her at a rock and roll show. talk about the song National Treasure this is one of those songs that you could perform solo but with the band boy it just yeah it's a fun it's, one it's yeah. a really fun one it's like the best of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers kind of thing but it also has this well yeah since Thomas Earl died I always had in my head I wanted to do an ode to him yeah. you know just and it's beautiful yeah to do it and I kind of accidentally it just came out like that and yeah. I'm like oh there it is that's Jim. Not that I'm comparing myself anywhere to Tom Petty. I was <laughs> well, you got some help just, on that from the from the fellows on the guitars. Yeah, yeah they're good. Uh, but some absolute gems of lyrics in here. I could quote the whole thing, but there's that singing John Prine like the bait and tackle choir. That one really got me. <laughs> I had to play it a second time to make sure I was... There's the train. There's the train. Isn't that romantic? Yeah, it is. I like it. <laughs> um, that that one line got me. And here's another one. That one at the beginning where you say, "You're packing up your records. You're filling up your mug. You kiss the farmer's dog." That cracks me up every time. Is kissing the farmer's dog a thing? Well, I guess it was this. This was an actual girl I met. Yeah, at my friend. Yeah, she, tell me the story behind this song. Yeah, she's uh, my friend. She's a hat maker makes great hats, Halfstead hats, and she was getting married on her farm and wanted me to sing at the wedding. So the Rainbow Girls were there okay. again, too. Yeah. We always run into each other at neat times. And there was a girl working on the ranch, and my friend's like, I really want you to meet this girl. I feel like you guys probably have a lot in common. Uh -huh. And, you know, I met her, and I was just like, what? Are you a real person? Like... <laughs> She had a wood lathe that was like turning a bowl. She had a Kawasaki torn apart. She had John Prine on the record player and making jasmine tea. And like, and I was like, Jim Harrison books laying everywhere. Yeah. And I was like, records. And then I was just like, whoa, she had feathers and taxidermy. And like, yeah. I was like, my God, I was submitting right off the bat, you know? And the song wrote itself right there. Yeah, well, in the morning I went to go get coffee for everyone. And I bought her some flowers. <laughs> and I thought she said, oh, nobody buys the forest of flowers, you know? And I was like, 
it's the coolest thing I've ever heard. Like yeah. somebody calling themselves a forest. Yes. I'm like, you are. And then I, she was like, later, she's like, florist, dude. I'm a florist. <laughs> and I'm like, oh. I'm like, I like forest better. Forest better, too. I like it better. And I've, I really wanted to stay and hang out with her, but I had to get back mm. to California. So I made the decision to just go. And I wrote the first song I wrote was Wild Buckskin. That's on, yep. that's about her. Okay. Too. Wow. <laughs> because, I mean, she had a 71 Chevy. She rebuilt herself in an ambulance. She turned into a tiny home. And, like, she was cool, man. Wow. And you just know you could never. Couldn't keep up with that. Well, I mean, <laughs> either one of us, I don't yeah. think, you know. You could just smell the tears. You know? <laughs> 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 yeah, so it was like we never pulled the trigger you know, mm-hmm. because it was like, man, I don't like you're just you're wild to me. I don't I don't ever want to see you not wild, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so that's where I wrote Wild Buckskin, you know, you are a wild buckskin. And because uh, she reminded me of one. And well, you, you may not have had a relationship out of it, but you got two awesome songs. Well, yeah, we still have a relationship. Okay. Like we're great friends. Like okay. we really, she became my muse, you know, like yeah. and we both were like, we were writing short stories and sending them to each other. But on that trip back to Oregon, before I left Oregon, I had Wild Buckskin written. And yeah. then from Oregon down to my house, I pretty much finished National Treasure right when I pulled up to my house. So both those songs were written in one drive. Wow. Just from meeting, you know, somebody so spectacular. It doesn't take long for your feet to get itching and you boxing up your books. Seven more Chevy. Where the windows roll down, they're dancing around. Smoking mobby lights as you're driving through the night. Singing John Prine like a beating tackle choir. Not knowing where you're going, you're just happy that you're going. And when you get there, you write a song letter. Sealed with dirty hands and a roadkill feather. Just leaving this dreaming about you. Driving your truck, you're writing a song. You're just singing it in your head over and over. How's this? Yeah, happening? just dashboard. John, I think yeah. I write songs with rhythm. Yeah, so That's, you're beating your hand on the dashboard and singing while you're driving. Yeah, and then it just, and then once I kind of get it, I'll just figure out what chords. Yeah, it is. You know, kind of. That's yeah. pretty good. So earlier days before I moved to Humboldt, I delivered pizzas, and it was like this Toyota truck with a perfect dash. So acoustic. I would play harmonica. Perfect you know. acoustic dance. Yeah, and I yeah. just write reefer songs, you know, and just <laughs> dorky songs. And but I learned didn't have a radio, so yeah. that's when I when I don't have a radio. My on my van the dash is a little far. Yeah. So it was kind of hard. I have to more steering wheel beats, <laughs> you know. You need the customized uh, dashboard extender. Yeah, I need to just build a. Some kind of drum, like a, a wooden situation. Yeah, a little cajon, dash cajon. <laughs> That'd be cool. So many great songs to talk about here. We got to talk about Devil's Taxidermy. This is the one that really cuts to the bone on the record. I remember when I saw you perform, this was the song that made me think, this guy knows things. 
like you know made the hair on my arms kind of stand up yeah song um yeah that one's close to home to me yeah i mean the, the version of the record with the electric guitars doing that crazy horse thing is also great one of these another example of two versions of this song i love but, how you're saying all the things that we referred to the songs like the crazy horse uh, like you know because we love that stuff yeah, and i mean it's well it shows yeah and it's just why not yeah so tell me about how this song came to you and, and it's obviously well, an important song yeah it was a buddy who like he he just picked guitar like you know tony rice was his guy and he was just mm learning he was like warm butter so good you know and we played a lot together and something just kind of happened and i think i don't know maybe he was with the wrong girl or something and maybe got into pills and then he just slowly pulled away you know from and, music and from yeah music. and then got got into the needle and got mm -hmm. into you know smoking like we all just I always tried we would give him a guitar he like sold all his guitars he had like a Santa Cruz guitar and things like and then we'd give him a guitar and then he would we'd find him and then he's homeless and mm. and he's one of our best friends it still is you know and like every time we, we see him I mean he's still out there it's like he still has that hope of coming back and we all do you know and yeah. like um, it's just personal like that. I don't, I don't mean to like air such a personal thing, but I mean, I've found that that's all over the world and people really relate to it. And, and it's kind of a, it kind of helped heal me writing a song like that. So talk about the metaphor of the song, the song title, Devil's Taxidermy. Explain yeah, I guess that. that's a, kind of a term I came up with when somebody's got like a Gibson perfect hanging on the wall mm -hmm. with dust all over it <laughs> yeah <laughs> and not being played okay it just seems like and then i think if you trade it for dope you know and some drug dealer has it hanging on the wall that seems like the devil's taxidermy okay. to me you know what i mean yeah so like, that hits pretty hard how did it feel when you traded your guitar For a night you can't remember When you were living in your car Where is it now? Is it hanging on some wall? Like the devil's taxidermy Just wondering where you are Oh, that's gotta be the saddest part of it all Spent so much time just pulling things apart While the calluses on your fingers Turned to that callus on your heart What was it like when you needed that guitar? But all you had was enough scratch For that itching in your arm Let's talk about the song Dangerous Beautiful. Two reasons I want to bring this up. One is to call out the amazing Anna Tivill. Oh, yeah. She's, uh, have you had her? I have had her. One of my favorite podcast guests. Yes, I've ever had. she is amazing. One of my favorite songwriters. You talk about poetry. Oh, 
Insane. And her partner, Jeffrey Martin, have you had him? Uh, he's. I think I'm going to be tracking him down. Oh, next. you have to, man. He's. They're so masterful. It's amazing that they are a couple. And it's like they have, <laughs> both have these superpowers, it's right? Crazy. Of writing. Yeah, and I don't see how they both don't have Grammys. I don't know what's going on where... Yeah. You know, I don't know how I, the it's, music business we is weird, but yes, that's I hear this. Uh, uh, people say this about you, Willie. So, oh man. Um, the other reason I bring this song up, we've this song, "Dangerous Beautiful." We've heard you talk about songs that are stories inspired by other people. We've talked about a few of those. I, when I listen to this song, I feel like I'm maybe getting a bit of your story. Kind oh, of absolutely, barstool poet kind of person. Yeah, right? I, I started. That was one that kind of just stuck in my head for a while because I stopped drinking for like three months. I've always kind of drank, you know? Mm -hmm. And when you're hanging out at bars and you're hanging out with your buddies and they're having their drunken conversations, it's just different, you know? When you're sober. Yeah, Yeah. and I'd be like, I'd be jumping right. My my drunken philosopher would be all over this one, you know? And then... You know, the barstool poet. So drinking's always on both sides of my family. It's just one of those things, you know. Yeah. And so I don't know. It's probably a relationship that's just probably going to end. You know what I mean? Like it's getting to that time. It just seems more and more like, you know, what are you doing? You're like, you know, why are you at the bar right now? Yeah. <laughs> like, and that's what this song is kind of saying. Yeah, and it's like uh, there's a beautiful part to my drunkenness yep. and then it turns it could turn into madness sure. you know not like I'm beating anybody up or anything but just the dark part of yeah. drinking you know so it's like a dangerous beautiful you know oh searching for them barroom smokes half dead in an ashtray one stumbling one slurring both searching for some words to paint We are a dangerous, beautiful You might not want to feed us We'll be screaming in your ears some nights Wondering why you freed us Wondering why you freed us We are a dangerous, One more song. I think we got time. Yeah. Bakersfield. Oh, yeah. Classic Western country honky-tonk sound. Matches the story so well of this song. I believe I read this song was inspired by your grandmother. Yeah. story. Yeah. So tell us about that, but also I want you to talk more generally about singing songs from the perspective of someone else, right? You're using the first person here to tell your grandmother's story. Is this something that just comes naturally to you? To... I, I guess. I, I mean, I, you I don't want... don't really think about it. I, yeah, well, I wrote a song. See, this is another one of those moments, and I must have been around the same age, four, and she was living down there in Bakersfield, and she had a boyfriend named Jim Bauer. Big Jim is what they called him. And he played at Trouts. He played, he was in the Bakersfield scene, you know, okay. through the 60s and 70s. And they were both crazy drinkers. Mm-hmm. And he brought that true tone 
guitar I was speaking oh, of. that's where that came from. And he was, my dad, and they were drinking at, on this ranch we lived at, and he wouldn't let him smoke inside, so they went and smoked outside, and that was the first time I, like, I took a sip of my grandma's Pepsi, you know, and it wasn't Pepsi, it was <laughs> Jim Beam, mostly, and I strummed that guitar, and my dad was... It was just, oh, give me a home. Big Jim was trying to teach him that. And when they came in, I was like, doom, 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 doom. And it was the first guitar I ever touched. And and I still have that guitar. And so I, I wrote a song called Big Jim's Guitar. Okay. And it's it's about both of them from my perspective. And so I wanted to write one from her perspective. And, you know, and then the next one's going to be from Big Jim's perspective you know this is a fascinating from a songwriting like the craft of songwriting perspective to sing the same story generally speaking from three different points of view one of them being yours yeah so i'm gonna have to do another show where we talk about those three songs and we'll talk about that would be great how this these different approaches one um because my my dad and my uncles and aunts like they remember my grandma a lot different than i do you know i mean she was did she actually feel this way about Bakersfield? Just oh, so yeah. our audience well, knows, the, the, the chorus is, don't bury me in Bakersfield. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I think even as a little kid from Ohio Valley, moved out, they were, I think they were in Lima, Ohio, moved out to the Mojave Desert, Irish Catholic, yeah. six kids, seven kids, and then I think... Uh, Great granddad moved away, just took off to Oregon. I don't know where he was, I forget. Mm-hmm. And so she was... Grandma was raising these kids in Mojave Desert, and so ended up just moving to Bakersfield when they were young. And then the state took the kids away. They were, you know, poverty and such. Yeah. I don't know the whole story, but I know they went to an orphanage in San Francisco, and they all escaped Jeez. and came back down. You know, and so my grandma just always kept ending up and her sisters. You know, in, in Bakersfield, but not on purpose. Not on purpose. Yeah. You know, and I mean, I guess. When she left my grandfather up in where we live in Knights Ferry, they had four kids, three boys and a daughter, and she took the youngest, the daughter and the youngest son, down to Bakersfield. Mm-hmm. And they both experienced a way different life than my dad and my uncle, who mm-hmm. stayed on the farm and became cowboys. They hit a little more harder yeah. scene, you know what I mean? And uh, always kind of... And tro- you know, never f- really figuring it out. It was just a, a lost time. And my grandma was at the bar all the time. and A cursed place. Yeah, kind of. And she ran with some men that weren't nice. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I remember my stories of my uncle standing up to these dudes yeah. in Bakersfield. And, and then she met Big Jim, and they just hit it off, and they were crazy. And then they moved to... Right outside of Monterey, he was, he okay. loves fishing, so he was a fisherman. That's a nice change. Yeah, and he had a little residency with a three-piece band there, yeah. you know, outside um, Pacific Grove is where they were, and that was kind of the happiest time of her life, I guess, is what I hear, you know, I, yeah. I was little, and then he passed away probably when I was seven or so. From drinking, yep. and then few few years later, she did the same okay. thing. And Where and she? as she was dying, she said, "Don't you fucking bury me in Bakersfield." <laughs> <laughs> and they so they cremated her. And one of my uncles, the so all four of them went out to 
throw her in the ocean, you know, mm-hmm. and it was like the classic Lebowski scene. All her ashes flowing flew, yeah, back is what they tell me, you know. <laughs> um, so I always thought that was funny, Don't Bury Me in Bakersfield. And I always kind of wanted to put that in a song. And I got stuck here back in 61 When the children were still so young Them honky-tonks were so damn fun You should have seen me dance And all the booze and all the bins a dream Tell my babies how to cry themselves to sleep Parties would last for weeks With those not-so-good-timing men And I'd get mouthy and they'd get rough Hell, most of them, they weren't that tough I guess I couldn't get enough Of the devil in this town But if I had my I just kept on driving so far away but now I'm here dying and I'm crying for this one last thing don't bury me in In Bakersfield Wouldn't wish that on anyone Do not bury me in Bakersfield Willie, I've taken up more of your time Oh, it's alright, I enjoyed talking with you Great conversation Do you still get a chance to play wiffle ball at all? You know, I think the last time I pitched I think the next day it was hard to move. <laughs> I think all of us did. We got yeah. a, we we got in these battles with the Cincinnati boys, and so we did seven years of it, you know. Yeah. Um, and we both had three and three, so the last year it was like, this and they it. took it, you know. And the next day, all of us were like, "Man, I think that might be the That's last it. one." Yeah, I know you enjoy it, but I'll still jump into it. All right. This has been a great conversation, Willie. Thanks yeah, so thank much. Yeah, thank you. And I'm really looking forward to tonight. You're going to be playing right here in our studio. It's going to be a great show. And uh, to those listening out there, you got to check this amazing record out. But also, go see Willie. Come to a town near you sometime soon, right? Yeah, always. All right, Willie yeah. T. Taylor, thanks. All right, thanks, Michael. I'm going to tell you what, tell you what. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you what. 